Ezekiel chapter 1. Now it came about in the thirteenth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was at the river, by the river Kibar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of Chaldeans, by the river Kibar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a high wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing intermediately and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like gleaming metal in the midst of the fire. And within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and was and this was their appearance. They had a human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they sparkled like polished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for their faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved, each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had a human face. All four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being, and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they go, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something like that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches moving among the living beings. The fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire, and the living beings ran back and forth like bolts of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the ground besides the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling topaz, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were high and awesome. And the rims of all four of them were covered with eyes all around. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. Whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Whenever the spear was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose just as they did, for the spear of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, they went. Whenever they stopped, they stopped. Whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose just as they did. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wills. Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. Each, also, each one also had two wings covering its body, on one side and on the other. And I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of an abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a, a sound of a crowd, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stopped, they let down their wings. And the voice came from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they let down their wings. Now, above the expanse, there was something above was over their heads. There was something resembling a throne like sapphire in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure which resembled or with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his waist and upwards something like gleaming metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw something like fire 
and there was a radiance around him. Like the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding of radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Saints, may God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And now to the preaching of his word, you may be seated. It was A.W. Tozer who said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, it doesn't matter your political opinion. It doesn't matter how well you are at your specific uh, area of, of work. It doesn't matter how well you are as a parent or the, the knowledge that you've accumulated by reading various books. But what matters and what most matters concerning a person is what they think about God. What they think about God. He also says the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above his religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than his idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question for the church is always God himself. What can you account proper worship to? A proper view of God. What can you account improper worship to? An improper vision and view of God. It is God and who God is and how we think about God that matters the most. In fact, is there any time for us to be totally invested into the Word of God? Is there any time for us, as Pastor Antonio loves to say, to lean forward? It is when we hear about how do we think of God? What is your opinion and view of God? And quite frankly, saints, what terrorizes the church, much of the modern church today, is a low view of God. A low view of who God is. It was Stephen Charnock who says, The true God should not be adorned without those vain imaginations and fantastic resemblance of Him. Saints, isn't this common what we see in modern churches today? Not to say that our church is the most perfect, but we see this in modern and many churches today. That the God who they are worshipping is a God of their vain imagination. That they make fantastic resemblances of God, but it's not the true God of Israel. So today, saints, this afternoon, we want to answer this one question, and that is this. What is God like? What is God like? Who is God? Saints, that is not only the question that should always be on our minds, the question that we continue to try to answer. It's also a dangerous question. A very, very dangerous question. But saints, if someone was to ask you, what is God like? What what should be your first response? What is God like? Well, saints, our first response is actually our first point, and that is simply this, that God is not like us. That God is not like us. 
The Lord says in Psalm 50, 21, You thought that I was just like you. And this is the first thing that we read from God or about God in our text. And we don't gather this truth from a specific verse per se, but what all the verses are saying overall. I mean, as I was reading Ezekiel chapter 1, weren't you taken back by the vivid imagery of God and how Ezekiel is describing what he's seeing? The big picture of Ezekiel chapter 1 is this simply, is this saints, is that God is not like you and I. That God is not the big guy in the sky. That God is not your homeboy. That God is not a kindly grandfather who who lives in heaven. That God is not us 2.0. That God is not a bigger and better version of a human. But rather, God is utterly different than anything in the created order. In fact, our confession speaks of this. It says, the distance between God and the creature is so great. Now we might read that and say, I get that. God's in heaven. I'm here. That's the distance, right? Herbert Boving says, the distance between God and us is the gulf between infinite and finite. Between eternity and time. Between being and becoming. Between all and nothing. In other words, the distance between us and God is not one of miles or kilometers. That God's in heaven, I'm here, I get it. But rather, the distance between us and God, what separates us from God, is not one of location, but one of being. Who God is, and who we are. That's what separates us from God. Who God is, and who we are. We have our being from God. But God doesn't have His being from anyone. Who gives to God life? God is His life. We exist because of God. But God is self-existent. There's nothing in this world that just is there, that's always been there. But God. God. God is the sole explanation for everything in existence. We have our life because of God, but God is His very life. Throughout the Scriptures, we see this portrayed of God, that He is so utterly different than His creation. The Lord says in Isaiah 55, verse 8-9, through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Numbers 23, verses 19, God is not a man that He would lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Psalm 145.3 Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. Not that His greatness is lost when we think of unsearchable. But His greatness cannot be found because it is infinite. Not because God is smarter than us because His thoughts are not our thoughts. God is, God is not merely smarter than us but He, but he reasons beyond us. He doesn't think on our level. Case in point, I'm sure there's many, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's times in your life when you say to yourself, man, I wouldn't have done this way. And at the very end, you say to yourself, God, I praise you for doing it this way. This was actually the most fitting and right way to do things. Or what about even this, when God says, He will not lie. I mean, it is, it's almost as if it is of our nature to lie. Even to tell a little, quote-unquote, not necessarily true, a little white lie. 
But God doesn't lie. But He even changes mind. Saints, how many times, even from even from this morning to right now, have you changed your mind? But God doesn't change His mind. Saints, time and time again, we read in the Word of God that God is portraying that He is utterly different than us. Although He describes Himself in creaturely categories, He's also describing Himself in a way that's beyond categorization. That we can't put God in a box. We cannot put God in a box and say, this is who He is. The overall message of the Bible, saints, is simply this, that God is not like man. That God is unusual. And friends, simply put, it would be unusual if God wasn't unusual. It would be strange if God wasn't strange. It would be, it would be weird if God wasn't weird. And He was like you and I. Saints, if God was like you and I, then we are worshiping merely the gods of Greek mythology. The the gods who are like their creation. But that's not the God who we worship. Friends, this point rebukes the common ideas of God that plague so many popular churches today. From the way God is spoken of in the sermons that are preached, to the way God is presented in the songs that are sung, It seems, saints, like the danger that is in wanting a God who knows us intimately, who can feel our pain, who can hear our cries. Many people have sculpted a God who is like us. People want God to feel their pain and to hear their cries. But in doing so, they have have reimagined and refashioned God into their own image. In fact, if you were to ask someone... Who is God to you? What is God like? I'm sure after the conversation, after they have given you a description of God, you might say to yourself, and you might be tempted to say, well, well, thank you for giving me a vivid description of yourself. Because many people want God to be like them. But friends, I say thank God, praise God rather, that God is nothing like us. That God is nothing like us. That He is not the vain imaginations of many but he's utterly different. And this saint should be the comfort. This should be the soft and warm pillow by which we rest our head at night. The great comfort of the Christian life is that God is not like you and I. That God does not operate in the way in which we do. And friends, our text this morning, it dashes the pieces any notion that God is anything like us. This point is only heightened by the way in which Ezekiel describes God. Consider how he describes God's throne. In verse 26, it's like sapphire. In verse 27, God's appearance, something like gleaming metal that looked like fire all round within it. In verse 28, God's throne is likened to the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. Now these are vivid descriptions of God, are they not? Vivid descriptions. But saints, we we must take note that as awesome as these vivid descriptions are, that none of these descriptions truly capture what Ezekiel is seeing. As as vivid as they are, they're not truly capturing what he's seeing. And we know that. Because did you notice how many times Ezekiel is using the word like in this chapter? How many times Ezekiel used the word like? Like burning coals of fire, like torches moving among the living beings. 
like sparkling topaz, like awesome gleam of crystal, like, 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 like. Friends, it's as if Ezekiel and what he's saying, words are escaping him. He cannot describe what he's seeing. Here, Ezekiel is experiencing the words of David in Psalm 139.6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What David said in Psalm 139, Ezekiel is literally experiencing that whatever I'm seeing, my words cannot map on perfectly to the being of God. Ezekiel's finite words, it cannot capture the infinite. Ezekiel's vision is surpassing all of the way he's able to speak. The saints, it must be noted that Ezekiel's inability to describe God is no fault of his own. It's not as if Ezekiel's lacking in theological training. He's a priest. He knows something about God. But rather, the one whom Ezekiel is trying to describe is indescribable. The one whom Ezekiel is trying to describe is indescribable. That is why he cannot fully capture who God is because the one whom he's trying to capture cannot be captured. God, as the great church father Athanasius once said, transcends all being and human comprehension. Our Lord is incomprehensible. Not that when we read something and at the very end we're just so confused and we say it's incomprehensible. No, from the very moment we embark on this ascent of Mount Sinai to know our God, He's incomprehensible. In other words, when you study God and know and try to know God, you're faced with a task that you'll never be able to get a PhD in what you're trying to learn. We can get a PhD in the other sciences. Many of you will go off to college, young ones, and get PhDs and be much smarter than your mommy and daddy and all the others in the history of mankind. There's many of you who are who work in a profession that you know many things, but saints, when it comes to God and the knowledge of God, you might not ever even get an AA. And not that you not that you can't know God, but you can't fully wrap your mind around the things that you know of God. Not that you can't fully wrap your mind around the things that you know of God. That our infinite God, that He infinitely surpasses our understanding, our imagination and language. He is, our God is, as Paul describes, a, an unapproachable light. He is a deep ocean of mystery. Whatever high thought you have, you have of God, remember, saints, that God is always, always so much higher. Whatever deep thought you ever have of God, trust and believe that God is always so much deeper. As saints, when you have family worship with your young ones and you're describing who God is, always end with this caveat that don't forget, son and daughter, that God is always so much more. He's so much more than what I'm describing to you. God is, as the great Dionysius says, mind beyond mind and word beyond speech. And here in our text, Ezekiel's mind is being stretched with the majesty and the glory and the grandeur of who God is. And friends, this is the wonder of God, is it not? That even in heaven, even in heaven when we our minds are raised to know God, not through a glass darkly, not through sin, but when we know God the way a creature is to know God, He will still be incomprehensible. The finite will never be able to transcend and have an infinite thought of God. Because God is infinite. To add to this point, friends, did you notice the creatures that Ezekiel describes? Four living beings. Each had four faces and four wings. 
And notice the description of the faces. All four had the face of a lion, a face of a bull, and a face of an eagle. Did you notice what they're doing, saints? Verse 14, the living beings ran back and forth like bolts of lightning. These creatures that are described are not the cute little baby angels that are painted and sculpted. These creatures that are being described are not the clouds, or rather the, the, the angels that, that sit on the clouds and play the harps. These creatures that are described, and hear me now, are terrifying. <laughs> terrifying servants of the Lord. This is not a fairy tale. In fact, there was one person um, who wrote a book who said that Ezekiel might have been hallucinating. He might have been on drugs by what he was saying because what he's seeing is so utterly different than what we experience here on earth. But no, this is no fairy tale, saints. This is reality. These are the angels of God. And notice that these angels are so big that all of their wings are touching one another. And these angels, as terrifying as they are, they know their place. With two wings, they cover their eyes. With two wings, they cover their feet. With two wings, they cover their eyes. And with two wings, they cover their feet. Big, terrifying, majestic angels of the Lord. And lastly, saints, did you notice what Ezekiel, or rather his response to this vision? What does, he, what does Ezekiel say? What does he say after he, what does he do after he's described all that we have seen? After all the words have run out? Well, it doesn't say that Ezekiel goes and he writes a song. It doesn't say that Ezekiel goes and he writes a book. But rather, our text reads, And when I saw it, I fell on my face. When I saw it, I fell on my face. It was the atheist Stephen Fry who was asked what he would do, what would he say if he ever met God. He said, I would tell God this. He said, how dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault. It is not right. It is utterly, utterly evil. This is what this atheist says that he would say to God. That he would tell God all of God's faults. But friends, this is not the response we see in the Bible when people have a vision of God. In fact, when people have a vision of God and encounter God, it's actually quite different than what the atheist Stephen Fry says. In fact, when people in the Bible have a vision of God, they, they can't even get a word out. Moses takes off his shoes. Job covers himself in dust and ashes and confesses his sins. Isaiah falls down. John falls down. When people see God, it is as if they quickly understand who they are and who God is. And friends, Ezekiel's response to this vision really encapsulates this first point that this infinite, majestic being who is our God is not like us. The last three things we learn about God from our text is that God is not limited, that God initiates, and that God speaks. God is not limited, God initiates, and God speaks. And this really gets into the context of this vision. Let's consider the first, and that is God is not limited. This vision, as glorious as it is, it did not start out that way. Consider what Ezekiel says in verse 4. 
As I looked, behold, a high wind was coming from the north. Now, Ezekiel mentioning the north is quite significant. For when enemies would attack Israel, they would come from the north. So here in Ezekiel's vision, when he sees a high wind coming from the north, it must have reminded him that when Babylon came and when they exiled the people of Israel from their homeland, saints, this is the backdrop of the vision, that Israel is not in Israel. They're not in their homeland. In fact, they're in captivity in Babylon. They are slaves in Babylon. The people have lost their land. They are living in Babylon a thousand miles away from the place they call home. In fact, Psalm 137 best describes the feeling of these Israelites. It reads, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There is no temple. There are no priests to administer the sacrifices. And to the mind of Israel, God is no longer on their side. And saints, have you ever been here? When all the externals of God's love have gone away, and you see everyone prospering, those who are not saved, your family and friends, who say to you, who do you say to yourself, man, they're not going to go to heaven. <laughs> when you see the world around you, all those who are mocking God, you say to yourself, God, how are they prospering and I'm here struggling? That is the, that is the mind of Israel. At this moment. And saints, what makes this vision so remarkable, and hear me now, that in light of present circumstances, here God appears to Israel's priests. That in light of present circumstances, in light of all the externals of what seems to be going on, in light of Israel's world being rocked and them thinking that God no longer loves them, here God appears to, to Ezekiel and he says this message that the people of Israel, you may have lost your land, but you have not lost your God. You may have lost your land. You may be in exile in Babylon, but I have not divorced you. Saints, hear me now. If all the externals of God's love has is slowly fading away in your life or has ever faded away in your life or maybe might fade away in your life, know this, that God has not divorced you. That God still loves you. You could think of this also in the book of Malachi. At the very last book of the Old Testament, it's after it, uh, it would seem from our perspective uh, years of a failed marriage between God and Israel. The people of Israel have so much, so much hatred for God stored up. And what does God say in the very first chapter? I have loved you. God still loves Israel in light of what Israel has done and continues to be. Again here, saints, what we read is that God is not limited by circumstances. God is not limited by circumstances. You may be limited by circumstances, but God is not limited Maybe so much disaster has come into your life. And maybe you think that God cannot pull you out of the sorrow that you're drowning in. But maybe you're a Christian and you're living in despair because a particular sin continues to cause you to stumble. You may think that you're beyond the mercy and forgiveness of God. Or maybe you've been praying for years for your unsafe family member or friend. And even, maybe even your son or daughter. And you have yet to see any fruit. Well, friends, if this is you, if this is you, that this vision is of great news to you. Of great news to you. 
That if you think that you are beyond the grace of God, if you're beyond the mercy of God, if you're beyond the love of God, know that God is not limited by circumstances. God is not limited by circumstances. Saints, don't ever believe the lie that says that just because we can't reach God with our arm, that God cannot reach down with His. He reached down and touched you where you were at. No matter in light of your circumstance. The second thing we see from this text is that God initiates. We see this in verse 4 and verse 1. Now it came about the 13th year on the 5th day of the 4th month while I was by the river Kibar. Among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now this verse is quite amazing, is it not friends? And what's so striking about this verse is it doesn't say that Ezekiel caused this vision of God. We might think that because Ezekiel was a righteous man, because he was a good priest, he lived a life of good works, and based upon that, based upon his life, God comes down to him. It doesn't say that Ezekiel was high on a mountain meditating and then God appeared. But rather, verse 1 says, the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. This is similar to Moses wandering in the wilderness, not looking for God, not looking for a burning bush, and then God appears. This is similar to Isaiah in the temple, not looking for a vision of God, and then God appears. Or like Saul on his way to persecute more Christians, get knocked off his horse, and then God appears. Saints, this is all of our testimony. No matter how much sin you indulged in, your testimony is simply this, that you were on your way to hell, but then God interrupted you. That is your testimony. That you were on your way to hell, but then God stopped you. God took the initiative. And praise God that He did. In fact, saints, if it wasn't for God stopping you on your highway to hell, you would be in hell. If it wasn't for God stopping you at your tracks, you would continue to go left. If God did not take the initiative, then you yourself, no matter how you yourself, or no matter how many times your mom or your dad prayed for you, no one could have stopped you from where you were headed. It is only and solely God who takes the initiative. And saints, thank God that He did. Don't ever believe the lie, saints, that says that in salvation. That God helps those who help themselves. That's the, that's the gospel of the world. That God helps those who help themselves. It's actually quite opposite, is it not? That God helps those who cannot help themselves. Isn't that the glorious news of the gospel? That God helps those who cannot help themselves. Many Christians think that in salvation... That we were running towards God and right when we were about to tire out, God says, you know what? You've been doing enough. I'm going to save you. Saints, God doesn't save us because we're trying really hard. God doesn't save us because we said sorry first. In fact, God doesn't wait for us to say sorry. Have you never considered that, saints? That God does not wait for you to say sorry. That is so different than how we operate in this world, right? That before you even ask forgiveness, forgiveness was made for you in Jesus Christ. That while we were still enemies, God sent His Son and made a way of peace. Before we ever took one step towards God, God took an infinite step toward us and His Son, Jesus Christ. And saints, this is unusual. 
This is very, in fact, this is very weird. Remember I said how it would be strange if God in His being was not strange, but also it would be strange if God in His workings was not strange. Because we don't operate this way. If, if I came up to you, um, or rather, let me say this, in a dispute, when two are in a dispute, it's typical that the offender goes to the one who's offended and tries to make reconciliation. So if I went up to Anthony, I slapped him in the face, it would be up to me, sorry Anthony for the crude example, it would be up to me to go up to Anthony and to make reconciliation. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, out of justice, Anthony does not have to come up to me. But I need to go up to him. But that's not how it works in salvation. Isn't that weird? That we are the ones who made the offense. But God comes to us. We don't go to God. We were the ones who made the offense. But God does not see it that way. We have offended God. We are the ones who have distanced ourselves from God. We are not the offended party, but we are the ones who made the offense. But as Augustine says in his confessions, when he says, speaking of God, you pay debts while owing nothing. You pay debts, but you didn't owe the debt. Just think of that. That we were in debt to God. I mean, how grateful would you be if you're in debt for a million dollars and then someone said, you know what? I'll pay for your debt for a million dollars. But we were the ones in debt. But God pays our debt. The ones who made the offense. All this is to say is at the beginning of our salvation, the cause of our reconciliation to God is only and solely on God who took the initiative. It was God who paid off our debt. It was God who comes to the the ones who made the offense and makes reconciliation. And the last thing we learn from this text is that God communicates. After seeing such a grand, vivid picture of God, is there anything that can match what Ezekiel has seen thus far? Is there anything that can top the beautiful descriptions of God's throne or the terrifying images of creatures that he sees or the awesome depiction of God? Is there anything that can top it? Well, friends... Consider with me the last two words of the last line of the chapter. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. What can top these images? God speaks. That God is not mute. That God is not interested in just elaborate and vivid descriptions of Himself, but rather, He's interested in His people to know Him Truly and rightly. That this one who we just described as incomprehensible, who is not like us, that this one, this infinite one, speaks. And if you go on to read the rest of Ezekiel, we see in chapter 2 that God gives Ezekiel his commission. But friends, the climax of this chapter is not more vivid fireworks of, of descriptions, but it's a speaking God. It's God who speaks, who communicates, and saints, this is wonderful news. Again, that God is not mute. That God desires for us to know Him truly. That the one whom Ezekiel describes speaks. And friends, the greatest speaking that God has ever done is in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest word that God has ever spoken to the history of mankind. And on the, on the pulpit of God's cross, on the, on the pulpit of the cross of Christ... The greatest preacher who's ever lived 
preached his greatest sermon with just few words. He put every single word that the Father has given to him, every ounce of love and charity that the Father has given to him for his people, for God, into action. His arms spread out, delivers the greatest, most loving sermon ever, not by words, but indeed in action. He shows us how much the triune God loves us, in spite of who we are. He preaches a message, not merely of, of, of wrath, as people want to say. He preaches a message of love. A message of love. That's what the cross preaches. That just as we can say, the Father so loved the world, the Son so loved the world, and likewise the Spirit so loved the world. That these triune persons love the world in this way, that the eternal Son comes down, takes on our humanity, lives the life we couldn't live, dies the death we deserve, raises victoriously. Saints, this one, this God, who's at an infinite distance from us, know this saint, has made, made reconciliation, has become one of us. Even now, Christ is still human. If you go up to heaven, when you go up to heaven, when you have your, when you get your eyes back <laughs> with your body, the same, the same hole that Thomas felt, you will fill. Christ's scars are still there. The scars on his back are still there. The nails on his feet and hands or wrists, however you want to say that, they're still there. The marks of the sin that drove Christ there are still there. And we'll be able to touch them. We'll be able to see our Christ in all of His glory. Saints, how do we live in light of this? Well, saints, just as we said this morning, it seems the great consolation and the great encouragement of this morning's sermon was behold our Christ. And likewise this afternoon, the great contemplation for this afternoon is behold your God. That if you think you have a grand vision of God now, consider all of who our God is. And this helps us with worship, does it not, saints? This helps us with worship. That the more higher thoughts we know of God and have of God, the more we'll be able to worship Him. Saints, we are to think that all that was said this afternoon was merely purely theoretical. That I'm just giving you a rehearsal of the doctrine of God and I want you to be smarter, but rather knowing who God, our God is should always, always prompt us to doxology and always should lead us to echo the words of St. Paul in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Saints, I pray that you could echo these words as well. And let us live in light of such great and lofty words and ideas of God. Let's pray.